from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I catching President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gibbon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, May 13th. Today, the truth behind a White House pandemic relief effort, what restaurants will look like after the pandemic, and the rise of bartering. In the earliest days of the coronavirus pandemic, officials were facing a huge problem, and that was widespread shortages of the personal protective gear that's needed to protect doctors, nurses, and others who are working on the front lines in hospitals. When the crisis broke, we had a reserve of 50,000 masks that we were able to to draw upon, but we've gone through that relatively quickly. Surgical gowns, face surgical masks, gloves. We need a lot, a lot more. The big issue is that a lot of this protective gear, gear like masks, gowns, gloves, it's made on the other side of the world, mostly in Asia. Amy Britton is an investigative reporter for The Post. Typically, when uh, medical supply companies are ordering gear from Asia, they're bringing it over by sea. So this gear is coming over on massive cargo ships, and it takes typically over 30 days for that type of protected gear to get from the origin to U.S. soil. Amy has been reporting on how the U.S. government has been handling one urgent question. How do you go and get that gear and bring it over to the United States as quickly as you possibly can? So then what was the solution for that problem? So knowing that the delays that would occur in kind of continuing as business as usual with sea travel, the Trump administration decided to look into an idea to try to rapidly get this gear over to the United States through airplanes. This idea was called Project Airbridge. And how did the administration talk about Project Airbridge? As you know, we formed a historic partnership with your companies to bring massive amounts of medical supplies from other countries to the United States. So there was a lot of fanfare when the Trump administration introduced Project Airbridge. And these are big, great planes, and they are bringing a lot of equipment into our country. This was the initiative. This was the solution to these massive problems that healthcare workers were facing when it comes to getting the gear that they needed the most. Fairbridge, uh, uh, 26 flights have been completed. Uh, four flights are scheduled to arrive today, bringing a quarter of a million gowns, 25 million pairs of gloves. Through the Project Airbridge, we've completed 64 flights carrying over 600 million pieces of personal protective equipment such as gloves, gowns, and other medical gear. They were talking about it as a life-saving effort that would get protective gear to what they called medical warriors on the front lines. They said that healthcare workers would be the direct beneficiaries of this effort. And when they rolled it out, it almost kind of had a, a military feel to it. The team doing that is an incredible team of military people and young geniuses. The name. It's really a military operation. The concept. Incredible people that love this country and they worked with the military. Almost like the Berlin Airlift and other signature efforts that were done by the United States in times of war. Admiral, you would say they were pretty smart, right? They were in the upper scales of IQ. They were the upper. They were the, they were the top scale, I'll tell you. 
So then this was, what, five weeks ago? And now what do we know about how Project Airbridge has been doing? So when we started working on this story, the first thing that we did was to try to go back and check everything that they've said. And that's when we started to find some discrepancies in what they had said publicly versus what had actually happened with Project Airbridge. What were those discrepancies? How was the project actually coming out differently than what people had been told originally it would be? So when the administration rolled this out, it was under the banner of FEMA. And when you roll something out under the banner of FEMA, I think there is a general impression that the public gets that this is truly a United States-sponsored disaster aid relief program. You know, they had military officials coming out in fatigues to discuss this program. But when you actually start looking into how this program is run, what you quickly realize is that the government actually has very little control on where these supplies are going. So how exactly was this supply chain supposed to work? When the government began Project Airbridge, they entered into an agreement with six companies that gave these companies ultimate control over where they would sell their goods to. The only stipulation was that these companies had to sell half of their goods into areas that were designated as hotspots. But with the other half, they could sell them wherever they wanted to. I'll just use one of the companies, McKesson, as an example. So McKesson would identify products that they can actually purchase in a country, let's say China. So McKesson says, we're going to purchase a certain amount of masks, a certain amount of gloves and gowns. And then a plane that is paid for by the U.S. government would go pick up those supplies and fly them over to the United States. And when those supplies hit U.S. soil, the companies then distribute them by delivering to their customers. The only role that FEMA has after it's been delivered here in the United States is to generally direct the companies where they should send 50% of it. So in theory, they could say, you have to send 50% to a hot spot. You have to sell 50% in this geographic area. But it's unclear to us of the 50% in hot spots what level of detail they actually know about where it's going within hot spots. Wait, so th- this was painted as this effort by the government almost in a kind of military fashion of, of what the government was doing to help hospitals. But it's sounding like they essentially outsourced it to a bunch of private companies. In a sense, that is correct. The only real role of the federal government in Project Airbridge is to pay for the transportation cost for getting the gear on these planes over to the United States. So far, taxpayers have paid at least $91 million to get this gear over here as quickly as possible. But then it's up to the distributors. So six companies, companies that bring in billions of dollars in revenue and medical sales, it's up to them where they want to sell this gear to. One of the questions that we were really trying to find the answer to is where did this gear end up? Because the Trump administration, FEMA, they've said that roughly a billion items of personal protective gear have been transported through Project Airbridge. So it's it's kind of a very simple reporting question you would imagine to say, well, okay, what cities got this gear? What hospitals got it? Where does that leave places like nursing homes or state governments who don't have these relationships with these huge medical wholesalers? And um, did it end up in the hands of the people who needed it the most? Or did it end up in states that haven't faced uh, the worst yet of the crisis? 
And when we started to ask those questions to FEMA, to the administration, to states and cities, what we found out is that no one was really able to answer that question. So tell me the process by which you went about trying to find some of these answers to these questions about what actually ended up where. So since FEMA told us that 50 percent of the AirBridge items were going into COVID-19 hotspots, we thought that it made sense to come up with a list of counties and states that had been most affected by COVID-19 infections. And we just divided up the list and started calling people to see what they knew, if anything, about Project AirBridge. When we were making these calls, we got a lot of responses from people who simply said that they could not possibly know if Project AirBridge supplies had come into their community. So we had county officials and state officials telling us that that they simply had no visibility into the process. One of the interesting things about Vice President Pence is that he had repeatedly put out numbers related to AirBridge deliveries to certain states. He highlighted Minnesota, he highlighted Wisconsin, he highlighted his home state of Indiana as having received AirBridge supplies. So he put out these graphics on his Instagram and his Twitter page that said that each of these states had received hundreds of thousands of N95 masks through AirBridge. And we knew from the aggregate numbers that there had actually not been that many N95s that were brought over through the program. So we had to go back to these states and say, do you know where these figures are coming from? Do you know what the vice president is talking about when he's put out these numbers? And an official in Indiana from the Joint Information Center actually told us that they had no way to verify the numbers that Pence had put out through his Instagram page. And when we asked the vice president's office about these images, uh, they were deleted quickly. Separately, we also started to file some Public Information Act requests related to these documents. So we've done that both on a federal level and on a state level. And we got some emails back from the state of Colorado that showed that in the early days of April, one of their emergency management officials emailed a FEMA official saying, what's going on? You know, there's no transparency. We're reading about the fact that FEMA is splitting this and and half of it's going one place and half of it's going another place. Why aren't we being told about this directly? And he wrote, no transparency, no communication with the states. Kept us out there fighting for supplies. It may have been effective six weeks ago, but now, what is really going on? And then do we have any information about what these supplies actually looked like in terms of what was being brought in and and how much of it was being brought in? So FEMA has provided aggregate figures for the amount of PPE that was brought over through Project AirBridge. And that was another thing that we really wanted to look into. We wanted to see you know, what were they actually bringing? And they gave us all of the numbers for the roughly 1 billion items that were brought over through AirBridge. When you break down the numbers, you see that 90% of the items that were brought over through AirBridge were disposable gloves. Wait, so so if 90% of what was coming in were disposable gloves, like, is that, was that the thing that hospitals needed the most? I mean, was there an urgent need for more gloves? I don't want to necessarily say that hospitals and nursing homes did not need gloves, but what we heard consistently over and over again is that hospitals and other healthcare facilities really needed N95 masks. Um, if, If you go back to the end of March and early April, there were so many stories with nurses and doctors saying, Nurses are caring for patients without the personal protective equipment that we need. 
get us a 95 mask. We need these masks to protect us against how the virus is transmitted. The gaps are so big. Stories are the same. Healthcare workers who, in our own country, who have never had to do this before, are reusing masks. So when you break down the numbers through Project Airbridge, you see that N95 masks have actually made up less than 0.1% of the items that have been flown in through this initiative. And why is that? If that's the thing that people needed most urgently, if essentially the whole point of this whole project was to get the things that people wanted the most into the country as quickly as possible, why was a tenth of 1% of what they were bringing in actually these masks that everybody was talking about? Well, unfortunately, I don't have an answer for that because none of the companies would talk to us. You know, we reached out to the six companies that were involved in this effort, and none of them agreed to answer questions. Only two of them gave brief statements uh, saying that essentially they were continuing to work with the government on this initiative. If you look at the figures of N95 masks that were brought in through the federal government through other channels, so general FEMA channels that are Separate from Project Airbridge, you see that the government has brought in over 70 million in 95 masks. So that, to me, raises the question, like, were these companies not able to actually procure these masks? You know, were they encountering difficulties? Were they just not able to deliver them to the federal government? And if you think about that, then you wonder, if we're paying tens of millions of dollars to support this effort, what is it actually delivered? So what has the White House said about this? So the White House views this program as a success. Uh, We've spoken to FEMA officials who have said that, you know, Project Airbridge was never meant to be a long-term solution, but as a short-term measure, if it got the goods over here faster than they would have arrived through a ship, ultimately, that's what matters. And so how would you characterize how this whole Project Airbridge has been executed and, and handled since it was first rolled out? It's a tricky question to answer. I think that early on, the Trump administration was pretty clear in the fact that they were looking to kind of look outside of the channels of traditional government response, you know, bring people in who came more from the private sector. So if you look at how this initiative was put into place and how it was conceived, I do think it's pretty interesting that they turned to the private sector. You could look at that response and say, well, why wouldn't you give control to your own government? You know, this agency that was designed and built to respond to disasters. Why would you turn to the private sector if you could trust your own agency? You know, as a reporter, I think we're conditioned to demand transparency and answers for these types of questions. You know, if government money is spent on an initiative, we want to know how it worked, uh, what was delivered, what was the ultimate outcome of the initiative. And time and time again, in reporting the story, just continue to fall into a black hole (laughs) where you're looking for information and it's just not available. So the Trump administration pointed to Project Airbridge as a solution, as an unprecedented effort for the private sector to collaborate with FEMA to solve a crippling problem that was putting people's lives in danger. And if we don't have the data, if we don't have answers from these companies, if we don't know where these supplies ultimately ended up, I think that raises a lot of questions about why this decision was made, why they went this way, and ultimately, what do we have to show for it? Amy Britton is an investigative reporter for The Post.
when the pandemic is over, there's been a lot of conjecture about what the restaurant landscape is going to look like. The consensus is that there will be fewer restaurants and that the restaurants that there are will have some major changes that will likely never go back to the way they were before in terms of, you know, sneeze guards at the cash register and individual condiments and, you know, buffets are gone and probably not coming back. And then there'll be more physical distance between tables. And for some restaurants that really create a lot of buzz and excitement around that kind of, you know, cheek to jowl environment, that may be a very long time in coming back, if ever. And then I think that we, we've all gotten used to takeout and delivery, and that will be a trend that continues to eat away at the experience of sitting down at a restaurant. I'm Laura Riley. I am the business of food reporter for The Washington Post. So where are restaurants currently opening back up or about to open back up? So we have you know 12 or 13 states that were the early adopters of, of doing some kind of reopening, but about half of the governors now have indicated that they are in the process of opening or, or have reopened to a certain degree, obviously with a lot of kind of strictures in place to help people to maintain that social distance. And how are restaurant owners deciding whether or not it's worthwhile for them to reopen? Like, what is their calculus when it comes to the possible benefits of getting back some of their business, but also some of the possible drawbacks and risks? Well, no one really knows how this is going to play out. And I talked to a bunch of fairly well-funded, fairly high-profile chefs who basically said, what if there's a second wave? You know, what if we open too soon and the people don't come. I mean, that's that's always the question. If you build it, will they come? And the jury's out. I mean, there've been a lot of surveys in the past week with people who say they're not ready to go back to a restaurant. They're not willing yet to take that risk. They'll do some takeout, they'll do some delivery, but they're not yet willing to go and sit in a restaurant with a whole bunch of strangers without the numbers coming down a little bit, without the, the curve being flattened for a more sustained period of time. So the restaurant owners that you've talked to, what do they say about what it is like as they're rethinking how their business is going to look in the future? You know, they're all making it up as they go along. But I did talk to some restaurateurs like Naomi Pomeroy in Portland, Oregon. You know, what I'm looking at is really having to completely revamp my whole business model and plan. I obviously want to keep my employees and I want to keep doing food service, but it's going to have to look pretty different um, in the coming months um, and maybe even years. You know, she has a restaurant called Beast. And one of the really wonderful things about her restaurant is that it has these two long communal tables where you sit and next to strangers. Well, that's not going to happen anymore. So I think that a lot of restaurateurs are wondering if the landscape is going to be just a lot less interesting when this is all over. I like this analogy of like the house is on fire and we're, you know, when we're discussing what color to paint the bedroom, you know, I mean, it, I want to figure out how to revitalize and revamp my restaurant concept. It's it's what I know how to do. I've I've been doing this business for 22 years and been incredibly successful at it. So it's, it's frustrating to not know whether I'm even going to be able to have enough bandwidth or, or runway to be able to shift the concept. I'm wondering if there are forecasts about what kind of restaurants will or will not be able to survive in this kind of post-pandemic world. 
Well, there have been some really dire predictions that 30% of restaurants are permanently closed basically as of now. It's hard to know, but that's what a lot of predictions have indicated. And the longer this goes on, and if there's a second wave where there's a little bit more closure and and reopening again, there might be widespread failure. Everyone is saying that the new model may be that that you rely less on in-person dining and that takeout and delivery are a little bit the new normal. So I think we're going to see a lot more of these ghost kitchens. So commissary kitchens or ghost kitchens where food is made offsite, you know, in a warehouse kind of kitchen. So there's a lot of talk about kind of the rise of the ghost kitchen. That was already something that was a little bit in the works for 2020. We were seeing a lot more of a pivot to online ordering and delivery. And it may be a trend that has been juiced a little bit by the pandemic. But I also think that you have to remember that what these restaurants are providing is not just the food, right? They're providing an experience. And it kind of goes back to this question about what the demand will be when things open back up. Like, if you're if you're in a situation where only half the restaurant can be full, you're separated from other tables by plexiglass, everyone is wearing masks and gloves, and there are these constant reminders that we are still in the middle of a pandemic, it's hard for me to imagine people really wanting to be there or spend money on that when you can say, I would rather just get some takeout that's cheaper and eat at home where I know that I'm safe and comfortable and can not feel like I'm in the middle of, a, of an experimental Petri dish. Absolutely. I think that you, you hit the nail on the head that going to a restaurant, it's it's performance. You know, it's very much akin to going out to the theater or something like that. A, a restaurant creates an illusion. I mean, you know how you feel when you walk into a busy restaurant, kind of a newly open kind of hip restaurant, and you're kind of checking out the other people and there's a certain kind of a palpable excitement to the place. And some of that is physical proximity with other people and noise and kind of bustle. And it's very hard to create any of those things if you're trying to maintain social distance and you're you're at 25% capacity and your server has a mask and gloves on. I mean, some of the states, they've, they've mandated these things that are flagrantly impossible. So like the state of Tennessee is saying things like, yes, between every table, the server has to change their gloves, every touch point at every mm. table. That's hundreds of pairs of gloves a night if you're thinking about every time a waiter touches down on each table. And if that server is waiting on four or five tables at a time, there's just no way to change gloves out in between each of those. So there's a lot of feasibility issues with doing this in a very safe way where you're not spreading potential germs between tables. It seems like the kinds of restaurants that are either chains or have been doing takeout for a long time and know how to do takeout well, that they might actually be in a better position to be able to adapt to some of those needs versus a very fancy restaurant that only has one location that makes amazing, beautiful food when you eat it there, but isn't actually in a position to really know how to provide good takeout in the long term. I've heard people in the in the restaurant industry say that after this is over, that the very, very high-end experiential restaurant, the kind of restaurant that you go to once in a blue moon as a celebration, that those might be okay, that those are our life experiences that we are willing to pay for, but that what might really suffer is the independent mom and pop, that those might disappear altogether because chain restaurants have the infrastructure, the kind of tech infrastructure to take care of business, and then they also have economies of scale, can buy and bulk, can disseminate food product between a whole bunch of of outposts of that brand. 
so I think that the biggest losers in all of this may be the small independent restaurants in, in every community that, you know, it's a husband and wife and some kids or, you know, kind of a family affair. And, and that's the tragic thing about it, because those are a lot of the, the kind of more idiosyncratic, more unique experiences that we have. Laura Riley reports on the business of food for The Post. And now, one more thing about the rise of bartering during the pandemic. You know, I kind of just started to see it popping up online. People were posting in Nextdoor and Twitter that, hey, they couldn't find any hand sanitizer, but they had so much fruit left over from their garden. And would anybody be interested in a trade? Then I started looking into it more and turns out there's tons of groups on Facebook and other social media platforms where thousands of people have joined to trade with their neighbors. I'm Rachel Lerman. I'm a tech reporter for The Post. I talked to this woman named Tammy Calhoun, and I found her because she has started this Facebook barter and trade group in Ventura, California. It's been pretty amazing. She started it after she went to the grocery store and things were just crazy. People were trying to grab the last items of things and people were getting mad at the cashiers and it was just wild. And she was like, there's got to be a better way to do this. So I, I started the free trade and barter. And then it just it just went crazy. I mean, I was I was even shocked with with the amount of folks that were involved, and a lot of the folks are unable to get out because of their health situations or their age, and they're connected. And it's just been a really wonderful, positive experience so far. I mean, it grows by about fifty to hundred people a day. It's up to almost five thousand now in seven and a half weeks. Economists say that this kind of bartering trend pops up every time there's an economic recession. So we saw it a lot during the Great Depression and then again during the Great Recession. And so they expect this to sort of pop up and then kind of go back down as the economy recovers. So it might not be something that persists for a long time, but it's still a good way for neighbors to meet neighbors and feel like they're helping out. I think one of my favorite things about it was so many people aren't even making trades anymore. They're just finding out what other people need and then donating it to them. One woman furnished her entire new apartment with just donations from the barter and trade group that she was in. And so I think that people have really found it kind of a lovely way to give back to each other during this really uncertain time. And people are meeting their neighbors and they're finding out all of these like special skills and cool things that their neighbors can do. And it was, it was a really positive and kind of heartwarming story to report. Rachel Lerman is a tech reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you're on Twitter and have questions or thoughts on a story that you've heard on the show, send us a tweet. Listener Kyle Mullins did that last week after hearing our story about political campaigning. He asked, is the job of dog catcher actually in elected position? 
Our producer, Rena, looked into it. She heard that there was one town, Duxbury, Vermont, where there had actually been an elected dog catcher as recently as 2018. Duxbury Town Office. Hi there. Uh, my name is Rena Flores. But she wasn't sure if that was still the case. I was hoping to fact check something about uh, an elected dog catcher position in Duxbury. We don't have one anymore. You don't? No. It's the animal control officer. It's a different position. And that is not an elected uh, position. Is that correct? No. Correct. All right. Thank you so much, Maureen. Yeah, bye-bye. Kyle, we're sorry to disappoint you, but we are glad that you asked. You can also get answers to your weird questions by tweeting with the hashtag PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.